Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. Uh, We're going to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into our study. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this study. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the people who are investing themselves to grow in you. I pray that this whole process would help them become the people that you desire them to be, uh, to make an impact in this world and for eternity. And we pray all these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, we have a component of our program that uh, we had kind of neglected last week, and that is our scripture memorization component. And I want to encourage you guys, if you're not actively working on your scripture memorization, to really step that up. We memorize one scripture a week. It's quite simple to do. Um, We have a format for how to memorize the scripture, and that is we have a tagline. We then say the reference. We then say the scripture, and then we say the reference again. And so I want to review uh, the scriptures that we've been memorizing up to this point. And the first one was, uh, tagline is New Life in Christ, and it is 2 Corinthians 5.17. So we would say, for instance, New Life in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. The second one we did was also New Life in Christ, and it was Galatians 2.20. So we would say, New life in Christ, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. That's the first two taglines is new life in Christ. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17 and then Galatians 2.20. Now the next tagline we're going to learn is the word, and we're going to do Joshua 1.8 as the first scripture in that tagline. So we would say the word, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Joshua 1.8. Again, the word, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Joshua 1.8. So I want to encourage you guys, make sure that you're reading... I'm sorry, that you're memorizing Scripture every week. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And we want to equip you with Scriptures that can address almost every um, conversation, every need that you may have as you're interacting with people out in the marketplace. Um, When people have some topic come up, this is going to immediately leap to mind. It's going to make you very, very effective, very powerful. You'll lean on it for the rest of your life. So encourage you guys to please take the time and focus on memorizing your scripture. I There's apps you can get that'll little be little quizzes for you, like little cue cards, and whenever you're sitting around, you can just pull your phone out and look at it. You can literally write these down on a 3x5 card and carry, carry them with you. And just... Do it like you eat an elephant, one bite of a, at a time. You know, start out with this one. Okay, the word Joshua one eight. This book of the law. Okay, 
the word Joshua 1.8, this book of the law. The word Joshua 1.8, this book of the law. Okay, I got that. Now, the book of the law shall not depart. Okay, the word Joshua 1.8, um, this book of the law shall not depart. The word Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart. And you just say it like that until you get the whole thing down, and the next thing you know, it becomes second nature to you. With that said, let's dive into this week's uh, chapter. We are in how to study your Bible, and we are on chapter 4, and we've entered into the section discussing interpretation. So let's recap. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we are learning the precept upon precept method or the inductive study method. It's the same thing, just has two different names. It's referred to in two ways. The inductive study method for studying Scripture. And there's three steps that we go through to properly interpret Scripture. Step one is observation, and we spent the last three weeks talking about observing the Scripture. And we're going to spend 80% of our time in the observation step, in the observation phase of our interpreting and applying Scripture. The second phase is interpretation, and that's where we find ourselves this week. Once we've done a great job of observing the Scripture, the interpretation is actually going to become quite simple, but there are some principles that we want to keep in mind. And so the first principle we want to remember is we remember context rules, the context rules. So when we're reading a Scripture, the most important thing is that we think of it in context. A, a Scripture taken out of context becomes a pretext for a proof text. A scripture taken out of context becomes a pretext for a proof text. That means that we can build entire doctrines and entire worldviews around scriptures, and they don't even mean what we think they mean because we took them out of context. So we want to start with the surrounding verses. So what's being said in the verses above and below the verse that's in question? And then what's being said in the chapter in which it's in question? And then what is being said in the chapters around that chapter? And then what is the overall focus of the book in which we find that scripture? What kind of book is it? Like, is it a historical book? Is this a story? Or is it a letter written to a group of people by one of the apostles? And what was the purpose of the book being written? What's trying to be accomplished? What is the author really trying to say in the big picture. And then, of course, we want to think about that verse based on the context of the entire Word of God. We want the entire canon to come into play when we interpret Scripture. So context, context, context. Don't ever let yourself start applying or interpreting Scripture without really trying to grasp what is the context in which I find this particular verse. The next rule is always seek the full counsel of God's Word. Always seek the full counsel of God's Word. Your book gave you an example from John 15, 7, where Jesus says, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Well, I mean, this is a televangelist dream verse, right? I mean, we can just stand on stage and say, Listen, Jesus promised you ask whatever you wish. It's happening. You want a Ferrari? Go for it. You want a mansion? Just ask. I mean, you just speak it, it's going to happen. Well, is that really what he's saying? 
No, of course not. And we can know this when we really understand prayer by looking at the entirety of God's Word, the full counsel of God's Word. You know, we have uh, teachings that say that we need to pray things within God's will, which is 1 John 5.14. We need to be having the right heart and the right motivation, as it says in John, um, James 4.3. So whenever we take come to a scripture, we want to make sure that we're looking at the full counsel of God's Word on that topic. If we're looking at something that's talking about prayer, what's God's Word say in total about prayer? If we're thinking about the idea of salvation or what is known in theological terms as soteriology, what does God's Word say in total about salvation? You know, there's there's people who've built doctrines around um, baptism because there's verses that say, believe and be baptized and you shall be saved. Okay, so does that mean we have to be baptized to be saved? Well, let's look at what God's Word says in total about salvation so that we can come up with an accurate answer. And just for those of you wondering, the answer is no, we do not need to be baptized to be saved. Salvation happens, and then baptism is an outward expression of obedience and declaration to the world of the inner change that's happened. So we always want to seek out the full counsel of God's Word when interpreting Scripture. Next, Scripture is never going to contradict Scripture. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God literally breathed out the Scripture through the influence of the Holy Spirit into the author's mind and heart and hand as he wrote. Uh, Scripture came straight from the Lord himself, and so the Lord will never contradict himself. And so if we have two Scriptures that seem contradictory, we have something we're not interpreting correctly in one of them. Somewhere we've gone astray. And so that's a guidepost to us to know, hey, I'm, I'm doing something wrong one place or another. I really need to examine this deeper and figure out what I'm missing because Scripture will never contradict Scripture. And if it appears to be contradictory, we're the ones who've gone wrong, not Scripture. Next, don't base doctrine on obscure passages. Now, this is a big one, and something I say a lot um, in all my discipleship training is you always interpret obscure passages in light of clear passages rather than interpreting clear passages in light of obscure passages. There are just obscure passages that we don't want to make them the thing that we focus on because we have very, very clear passages that are going to help us with those obscure ones. And where there's still obscurity and we just don't get it, we probably just want to leave that aside and keep our focus on the clear passages. You know, there's an example in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, where the question is asked, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? What does that mean, those who are baptized from the de- for the dead? So should we be baptized for dead people? Should we do that? Well, no, absolutely not. It's a very obscure passage. The you know best biblical scholars in the world don't really understand what was going on there. There was something happening in the city of Corinth in that time frame that we don't really understand that Paul was addressing. And it's not really that important because we've got all these clear passages about what baptism is about, what salvation is about, whether man can have something happen to them after they've died, You know whether they can have, I don't know, 
prayers made for them or whatever. So we don't need to worry about that passage. It's an obscure passage. Let's just leave it aside. Don't ever base doctrine on something that is obscure. Always interpret obscure passages in light of clear passages. You know, there's other examples where you have things like, you know, um, it appears that, that that God didn't make it possible for everyone to be saved. Um, well, we have very clear passages. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, Christ died once for all. I mean, we have things like that. These are very, very, very clear. There's no ambiguity. So where we have some ambiguity, we don't want to use the obscure passage to cloud the clear one. We want to do the opposite. We use the clear one to create clarity in the obscure passage. Next, we want to interpret Scripture literally. The Bible is not a mysticism book. It's not designed to be treated like mystic literature. You know, one of the things that liberal theologians do is that they make everything metaphorical and allegorical. You know, um, Jonah wasn't a real guy, and he didn't really get swallowed by a fish. This is all allegory to teach us some spiritual lesson. Eh, wrong. We interpret Scripture literally. If for no other reason that Scripture interprets itself literally, Scripture takes itself literally, therefore we should take it literally. Now, are there poetic passages? Absolutely. Are there um, sections that um, are designed to be metaphorical and allegorical. Of course, for instance, Christ uses parables, and he makes all kinds of analogies in his parables. We would be doing a disservice to not read those as analogies. But we want to take Scripture literally. We don't want to hyper-spiritualize it. Whatever it says, that's what it means, and we should interpret it as such. Number six, look for the author's intended meaning. Here again, what the author's trying to do, this goes back to context, but it's very, very important. I mean, if I'm writing to you, my loved one, and I have, an, I have something I'm trying to convey to you that's deeply important to me, it would do me a great injustice if a century from now someone comes along and picks up that letter and knowing what I was really trying to do, takes the words that I put on the page and twists them to try to say something that I never had intended. This is what happens a lot in theological circles. We have modern people show up and they want to twist the words of the scripture to mean something that it's obvious the author never intended it to mean. We want to take the author's meaning and intent seriously because really that was the intent of the Holy Spirit since the Holy Spirit is the one that guided the author into saying what he said or she said in all the Bible cases it's he. And then last, we want to check our conclusions with reliable commentaries. Now, a commentary, for those of you who don't know, is a scholarly work in which some uh, supposed expert on a given book will in most cases, the way it's structured, go line by line through that book and just comment on it, just talk about what's being said. And um, it's kind of like a very long, very detailed sermon that covers every line of a particular book. So if you have a commentary on the book of John, you know there will be some kind of preface or opening chapter that might talk about John in general, like 
who wrote it, where was it written, what time frame was it written in, what's the author trying to achieve, and then it'll just start breaking it down. Chapter 1, verse 1. Here's some thoughts and insights and things that you might want to know about verse 1, and then verse 2, and then verse 3, and so forth. Now, you want to check your conclusions with commentaries. Notice this is the last step. This isn't the first step. A lot of people go straight to a commentary when they want to understand something deeper about the Scripture. This would be uh, a mistake because in many cases, the commentaries are not accurate. The commentaries have broken one of these first six rules that we just went through. And so we want to be people who can even hold the commentary accountable. We want to go through the first six. We don't want to be lazy. We want to do the work to know what we think it says before we kind of check ourselves with someone else. It's like in class, you know, like like let's say there's a literature class. You read the book, you come up with your own thoughts on the book, and then you go sit down with your classmates and there's a lot of edification by going, well, what did you see here? And they give you thoughts that, wow, I didn't really ever see it that way. That's very valuable, but you really want to do that at the end of the process. Well, that's true with Bible study as well. We want to have our own conclusions drawn. We want to have our own thoughts before we go get the insights of the commentator. And then it says reliable commentaries. How do you know if a commentary is reliable? Well, you need to do a little bit of homework. You know, who is this writer? What is their theological background and heritage? You know, as an example, um, if you find out that a writer um, of a commentary has a Mormon background, well, that should give you pause. If you find out, for instance, that... um, you have a, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily need to give you pause, but it's just something you need to know because they're going to bring that filter to their commentary. So, as an example, if you have a commentator that has a Catholic background, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not accurate, but it definitely means they bring a lot of stuff that they have as presuppositions to the table in how they interpret and apply scripture. So you just want to know that up front. And of course, you know, if you can find commentaries written by people who are from very reputable theological institutions and have, you know, strong pedigree in terms of their their educational background or their service to the church or whatever, that's good. Also commentaries that have stood the test of time, you know, ones that have been used uh, for you know, decades, if not centuries, always are good to rely on because things that go, things that come in and out of vogue, um, you know, there's a lot of theological, I don't know, trends, if you will, stuff that becomes hip for a season and theologians get all excited about it. And then because it wasn't really true or accurate, it kind of goes by the wayside and we move on to something else. Well, those commentaries come and go. We don't need those. The ones that have stood the test of time typically um, have stood the test of time for a reason. So the very last step is to check with reliable commentaries. So with that said, um, that is discussion on interpreting Scripture once we've observed. With that said, we're going to go to the God who cares and knows you, and we are in week Week three, your purpose in life. And uh, it starts the study by saying, what's your goal, your driving passion? Is it satisfying? If you were about to die, would you know you had finished your spiritual course successfully? 
If not, we need to talk. And so we dive into John chapter 4. So we have a couple of very famous stories taking place here in John chapter 4. The woman at the well is story number one, and then the healing of the man's son, which is also counted as the second sign in the book of John, as story number two um, in John chapter five, actually, is when that takes place. So the first question I've got is, um, what did you learn about Samaria and the Samaritans and how they're different from the Jewish people? And specifically, how their worship differed from the Jews. Right. So, uh, Samaritans mixed in pagan worship. What happened with the Samaritans? Where, who are these Samaritan people? Where did they come from? The Samaritans were left in a section of the world that was taken over by the Assyrians. So, the Assyrians took over a section of the nation of Israel, and 10 of the tribes of Israel, for those of you who don't know, there were 12 tribes of Israel, but 10 of those tribes ended up being taken over by an Assyrian empire, or the lands that they occupied was taken over by an Assyrian empire. And many of those people began intermarrying with the Assyrian children, and they began to incorporate the Assyrian pagan practices into their worship practices and into their Judaism. And so um, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as, you know, a lesser people. They were they were half-breeds, so to speak. And I, I know that's a very derogatory term. I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm just saying that's how they were viewed by the Jewish people of the of the first century. And so the Jews looked down very much. There was there was absolute overt racism, as we would know it today, towards the Samaritan people because the Samaritans had corrupted their Jewish heritage and did not practice pure and true Judaism. So we have this very interesting occurrence where, right, Shelley just added that they didn't have respect for Samaritan women. Well, this is a very interesting point that we're going to discuss because We've got an absolutely historic thing happening in chapter 4. We have Jesus Christ interacting not just with a Samaritan, but with a Samaritan woman. Now, women in general had zero status, zero standing in Jewish society. And Christianity is the greatest advancer of feminine or or female causes in all of history because Christianity did something that had never been done in history and that was give a place of honor and respect to women and it's all throughout the gospels uh, one of the great ways to defend the accounts of the resurrection are the fact that the first people to have reported the resurrection were women. Now, you got to understand that in this time, in first century Rome and in first century Jewish society, a woman had so little standing that if a female 
was the only witness to a murder. The murderer would go free every time because a woman was not even allowed to testify in a court of law. If oh, if if 50 women saw a man murder another man, the murderer would go free because it doesn't matter that there's 50 of them. Zero women had any standing in a court in that society. So if the authors of the Gospels were trying to create some sort of conspiracy to convince their first century brethren that Christ was the Messiah, the last people they would have ever chosen to be the reporters of that fact would have been women because it would have been immediately discredited or not considered important by their listeners. The only reason they reported that women saw him first is because women actually saw him first. It also is a testament to our Savior and to God's wisdom that he chose to have women see him first. Again, elevating their status. So I digress. Let's go back to John chapter 4. Here we have Christ interacting not just with a Samaritan, which was unheard of for a Jew to do, but with a Samaritan woman. Absolutely crazy. And what does... Christ revealed to this woman, and what what is the discussion that they end up getting into? Right. He knows everything about her. What happens before that? Let's actually look at the Scripture. Let's just read it together, shall we? It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, which, by the way, let's just stop down right here. Here we have an example of Christ's humanity. He was weary. He had traveled far. He was thirsty. Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husbands and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband, Jesus said to her. You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And in truth, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What does she try to do when he calls out the fact that she's got multiple husbands? (laughs) Yeah, she's, she's thinking, wow. But. Yeah, she calls him a prophet. What she tries to do is the same thing Nicodemus tried to do in chapter 3. Rabbi, it's clear that you were sent from God because no one could do these signs unless God had sent him. She's trying to fluff him up, and she's trying to kind of divert the subject. Oh, clearly you're a prophet. Well, let's talk about something theological here. You know, you you say we're supposed to worship here. We're, we think we're supposed to worship on this mountain. Tell me, wise sir, which one is this? And what's he do with that? He cuts right through that to the heart of the matter. And then what was that last thing that we read? What did he claim to be at the end? Right. He tried he claimed to be Christ. He claimed to be the Messiah. A lot of people, liberal theologians will try to rewrite things and you'll hear people say things like well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be the Messiah. His disciples tried to put that on him. Well, wrong. Here he is right here, very blatantly saying, you know, that she says, you know, we know that the Messiah is coming. We know he's going to reveal everything. And he says, well, he's here. He's standing right in front of you. So at that point, she heads back to town and uh, she goes to tell the people what's just happened. Now, what was when she comes back and she brings people with her, the disciples show up. What was the difference between Jesus' attitude towards this woman and the disciples' attitude toward the woman? Right. The disciples were flipped out, were they not? They're like, oh my goodness, what is he doing? Uh we thought you were the one, and here you are doing a big no-no. You're talking to a woman. That's a no-go. And you're talking to a Samaritan woman on top of that. This is anathema. So how does that, what does that demonstrate to us about our attitudes versus Christ's attitudes? Or Christ's attitude, I should say. Is Christ concerned with the external things? Is Christ concerned with external keeping up of appearances, being legalistic? Christ sees the heart. Christ goes to the heart. And this is what we're to do as disciples of Christ as well. We're not to judge as the world judges. We're to judge and think of people as God does, whereas the world sees the exterior. God's going to the heart. God's seeing the heart. God cares about every single person. It doesn't matter that these were Samaritans. They were still his creation, his children. Christ came for them too. Now, why did Jesus go through Samaria? I mean, is that the only way to get home to Jerusalem? Let's, 
I wanted to um, show you guys. I've got some. Um, I've got some slides here. I was going to show you. This is a map of this area of the world, and uh, we have Judea. And I'm trying to remember. Do I have a pointer? Uh, I don't think I do. Anyway, we have Judea down here in the left, and uh, we have Samaria, which is up here, and you see uh, Shechem down here. And then up here is the Sea of Galilee, this little blue patch of water is the Sea of Galilee, and you can see Nazareth off to the left of that where Jesus was born. I have a different uh, uh, example here. So um, you have Jerusalem down here in the south, and you have Galilee up here in the north. Now, you actually had to go out of your way to get to Samaria. So Knowing that Jesus had to go out of his way to get to Samaria, why do you think that Jesus did go to Samaria? I think that's partially right. I think he did want his disciples to see him talking to a Samaritan woman. Um, he wanted to reach these people. He wanted the... These are still Jewish people back, you know, from back in the day. They're still the seed of Abraham, and he wanted them to know the Messiah has actually shown up. I wanted to show you a couple of other little images. So um, this right here is the town of Sychar, and uh, this is what it looked like um, about 60, 70 years ago. still looked very similar to what it might have looked like in very ancient times. And this is the actual well. This is Jacob's well. And this is a woman who is drawing water from the well as they've done for millennia. And you can go there to this day and go to this well. And there it is. So I thought you would find that interesting. Um, we're putting together a trip to Israel for next year. We're going to do a teaching trip over to Israel and we're going to take people who want to go with us. If y'all are interested in that, stay tuned. We'll be giving you details on that. All the details are almost finalized for that. Um, and we're going to talk through, we're going to teach through all of these locations, which is pretty exciting. But you can actually still go here and see this well. With that said, let's go back to what did you learn about the idea of believing? What did you learn about, you, sh you should have marked the, the everywhere you saw the words believe. What did you learn about that? What caused people to believe? What was it that spurred the belief? Did Jesus do anything miraculous? Did he give these people a sign of any kind? Right, so he knew the Samaritan woman's history even though they had just met. He knew everything about her, just like he knew about his disciples before they were called. So he showed, he demonstrated here omniscience, one of the hallmarks of deity. See, last we saw that he controlled space and time when he changed the water into wine. Now he's demonstrating supernatural knowledge that he couldn't have known if he wasn't God. And he performs that miracle for her, and then she goes and testifies to others what happened, and because of her testimony... They also 
believed. But what was her testimony of? What was she testifying to? What was she saying to these people had happened? Well, she was telling them, this guy knows everything about me. She's confessing, she's testifying to the miracle that Jesus just accomplished. And so they either just believed or they came rushing to see, and when they came and met him themselves, we don't know what happened in all those conversations, but you got to believe that he probably knew some stuff about them too. And based on them seeing her testimony or hearing her testimony and based on their own interactions with him, they also believed and had eternal life. So what does this tell us about the nature of the gospel itself? How does salvation come to somebody? Right, through someone's testimony. We learn in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It says, how can they believe who have not heard? And how can they hear if no one preaches? And then it says, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news? So faith comes by hearing the testimony of someone who has seen the miracle of Christ in their life. If you have had Christ transform you, as we've learned in our first two memory verses, where we've been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in us. If we have seen our life transformed by his saving power, if we have a testimony of what he's done, it is our obligation to go shout to the world, you got to come see this guy called the Christ because he's changed my life. He has transformed me. It's a miracle. I'm a new person. This is the way that salvation reaches the ears of the lost and comes to the lost. Again, God could have chosen any mechanism he wants, but he chose this mechanism of doing signs and wonders in the first century so that those people would believe, and then those people could then tell somebody about those signs and wonders, and it would continue, so forth and so on, all the way up to you and I. What's the greatest sign and wonder he ever did? He was put in the ground dead. He got out alive. The first century disciples told people that story, who kept telling the story, who kept telling the story, until I heard the story. And I investigated that story, found it to be true, and I too believed. Testimony. The word of the evangelist is so critical in the process of people getting saved. So I would just encourage you, how often do you share your story? How often do you testify as to what God's done in your life? How often do you point people to the man and say, you've got to come meet this Jesus that I met because you won't believe what he's done, and they can believe as well. Next, we move to the next miracle. Uh, Mike says, am I reading more into this? It also makes clear there were no works by the people who believed. It doesn't show anything else, just belief. That's right, because that is what salvation is based on. Just belief. You don't do anything to be saved. You believe on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. So, great question. So, the next miracle is what? What happens next? Right, the healing. Tell me about that. We're at the end of chapter 4. He came to Cana in Galilee. So, uh, let's go back and look at our, our little map here. So, we're down here in Samaria. And he goes back up to Galilee, which Galilee is, if you see where Capernaum is, that little uh, 
kind of oval circle thing is the Sea of Galilee. So he goes back up to Galilee. And by the way, when you go to Israel, you are going to be blown away when you see what this really looks like. It looks like, oh, I just took a little walk from here to here. Oh, my goodness. The landscape here, the distance is absolutely mind-blowing that he walked all this way. Um, It's just amazing. But he goes back to Cana in Galilee, which is up here right above Nazareth, which this is an extremely mountainous region of Israel. What happens? There's an official that comes to him, right? And what's the official saying? My son's dying. Come heal him. Now, what's interesting about this is, why would a guy show up? Why would a guy just come to some stranger on the street and tell him his son's dying? Could you please heal him? I mean, what had to have happened at this point? He had to have heard about the water to wine miracle. He had to have heard there's this guy that is doing crazy things. And so he had to leave him and check it out. Now, we also learn about the time frames. How close was this guy to his son when he reaches Jesus in Canaan? He had to be far, right? How do we know that? Well, let's just look at it. Let's read in verse 49 of chapter 4. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign. So he had to be so far away that when he leaves Jesus and starts journeying back home, his servants come to meet him halfway. They actually meet the next day. They're so far away. So he's at least a day away. To come find Jesus. That's how serious he is about searching this guy out. He's going to travel an entire day to find this guy because he's been told of what this guy can do. He gets there. Jesus, of course, does the miracle. And again, once they see the sign, they believe. So we have this pattern of God doing amazing signs so that people can believe, so that the belief can come easily. He said to him in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, last, we get into chapter 5, and here we get into the famous healing at the pool. So in this section, we have a lot of discussion of the father and the son What do we learn about the relationship between the father and the son? Okay, the the son does the father's will, correct? Let's just read it all together. Let's look at verse 18 of chapter 5, because we're going to say, we're going to see some very big truths here. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, which is what? Making himself equal with God. Anybody that claims that Jesus never claimed to be God 
has to try to explain to us why the Pharisees wanted to stone him all the time. You see, they only stone people for something called blasphemy. And blasphemy was equating yourself with God. Every time Jesus spoke, they're picking up rocks. They didn't have any doubt in their mind what Jesus was saying to them. There was zero ambiguity in what he said to them. They knew he was claiming equality with God the Father himself. So let's continue in verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The <coughs> Excuse me. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, so just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now let's just stop down right here. How many of you have ever heard someone say, Oh, I believe in God, it's just, you know, I'm just not a Christian. I believe in God, I believe in a higher power, I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a very spiritual person, but... You know, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm not going to buy into any kind of organized religion like, like Christianity. What does this verse tell us right here about that kind of concept of religion? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. You cannot claim to be a God-loving person and reject Christ, His Son. They go hand in hand. They are one and the same. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And then he continues to go on in this discussion. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we see this absolute correlation between God the Father and God the Son, this inner per, inner relationship that has existed for all eternity between God the Father and God the Son. Let's, la- let's ask the question that is asked at the end of our study in the book. K. Arthur writes, What is your goal in life? What is your driving passion? If your life were ending, would you look back and say, It's okay, I did what I was supposed to do? So many people are driving, pushing, and straining to do more, but they get to the end dissatisfied. This doesn't mean God wants to move you out of your occupation or position when he saves you. Rather, he wants you to know that wherever you are, even in your own Samaria, you have a purpose to do his will. John 4 and 5 take place at two different times, and John uses both of them to show the relationship Jesus Christ had with his Father. As you look at that relationship, you're going to learn about your own walk with the Father. If you walk this way with him, you won't feel incomplete at the end of your life. John 4 records Jesus going to Samaria. The woman he meets comes to him and leaves her 
water pot. She runs into the city and tells some men, Come see a man who told me all the things I have done. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that none of you, that you do not know anything about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then he comes, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. God wants you and me to lift up our eyes and look at the harvest. Why? Because he's got a harvesting job for us in fields that are white, meaning they're ready. And if we don't do it, we're going to be sorry when we see him face to face. Jesus told his disciples that his food, his meat, was to do the will of God. And we should stop and think about the context in which he said this. Where's the Samaritan woman? Remember, she went into a city to tell people to come meet the man who told her all the things she had done. So she's gone. His disciples are there. Their focus is on food, and they think surely Jesus has to be hungry. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that are white for harvest. Now, when fields were white for harvest, they were overripe. In other words, they should have been harvested a long time ago. This is an important analogy. What are we here for? Why have we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? What happened that is so valuable? Do we have something to tell people? Let's look at what's happening in the Gospel of John. God is showing us a pattern. Remember, John was written so unbelievers would come to faith in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And what does Jesus do to convince men to believe? He does miracles, signs. In chapter 3, what brought Nicodemus to Jesus Christ? A sign. Here in chapter 4, we see Jesus doing miraculous signs again. After his encounter with the Samaritan woman, Jesus stays in Samaria for two days. Why? John 4.39 says, From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. When this woman believed, she didn't think, I'm going to keep this to myself. Instead, she took the good news, ran into the city, and shared it with many people. Jesus' knowledge of her secret life identified him as the Christ, the anointed one of God. Accordingly, she told these people the Messiah had come. They came out to hear Jesus because they believed her word. And this was just the beginning. Verse 40 says, So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. He didn't just walk through. He stayed with people the Jews considered enemies. And according to verse 41, many more believed because of his word. That's really the way it ought to be. We share the word of God. We share our testimony. But then we lead people out of their cities to meet Christ themselves by getting them into his word. That's what this Bible study is all about. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We have a duty. The fields are white with harvest. Are we focusing on our purpose? Are we going to live a life in which we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Remember your memorization verse, Joshua 1.8, from this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. 
I hope that this is a valuable study to you guys. I can't wait for you to be with us again next week. We'll dive into week five. Until then, if you have any questions or theological concerns or just want to talk, we have the Facebook group, Scott Ross Discipleship Program. Just join our group, and we're happy to support you that way as well. Until we meet again, guys, God bless you. Go out and testify what Christ has done for you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout-out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.